Welcome to Crew Conversations. This is our spot to continue the conversation for Crew in the Fenway. And I do just want to make a quick note that there is a brief mention of suicide in today's episode. We invite you to do whatever is best to take care of yourself. Let's get started with today's episode. Hello, friends. Welcome to Crew Conversations. Patty here. I'm back. And tonight we have Lou Lim again, one of our panelists from Monday Night Crew to go a little bit more in depth on the topic of mental health. Welcome, Lou. Super grateful that you're here tonight. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to having a conversation with you, Patty, and, um, and having this conversation in service to the students. So I loved our panel the other night. The only thing that made me sad about the panel, I think, was that some of the topics I would have loved to hear a little bit more about. And so one of the places I wanted to start today, you were sharing a little bit about your journey into how you became a mental health professional. But I'd actually love to hear more of that story. Like, how did that field capture your attention? How did you get to where you are now? All right. So becoming a mental health professional, that was not the first thing I was interested in. Um, my heart was originally in wanting to be on Broadway. I wanted to be a Broadway actor, be in theater full time and hustle in Manhattan and all of that. And um, I told my parents and they were highly disapproving. They definitely said that you, um, Louie, my childhood name, Louie, if you decide to go into this, we're not going to support you financially and support you. And so I, I went to some soul searching and some praying, talk to God. I was at my school one day sitting outside waiting to get picked up. And I'm like praying to God my senior year, God, what do you want me to do? What's your will in my life? And I felt this audible voice or this very clear experience. I heard God say, I want you to work with kids. And I asked mm-hmm. myself, are you sure? God says, yes. And I'm like, really? He says, yes. And I'm like, okay. And I was thinking, like, well, how do I work with kids? And so the only logical choice at the time was psychology because I didn't know much else. Um, and so I did some research and found a, um, eventually a psychology program at my school. I went to Southeastern University, small um, Christian school in Lakeland, Florida. Um, and when I applied there, the, the department chair um, was able to give me some feedback of like, hey, have you ever considered play therapy? This idea of like using play and imagination um, to work with children. And so never heard of it, did my research. I went to Southeastern, of course, and navigated school and um, had a minor in, um, in um, theater and biblical studies. The theater degree was on scholarship. And so I got to navigate the arts that way creatively, um, which was my way of saying, hey, I still want to do the arts, but can't be a Broadway actor. Still want to have a viable degree in my mind, which was psychology. Um, and eventually found out Leslie University was a school that was really interesting for expressive arts therapy, the integration of um, creativity in the mental health. This could be art, music, um, dance movement, writing, um, some psychodrama and drama therapy. These, those terms are just the idea of using acting um, and therapy, two different sides of the same coin, so to speak. Um, and so navigating there, that was actually the best school I could find at the time. And this was like circa 2006 when the internet was like navigating presentations of websites and I was googling all these programs for play therapy expressive therapy and they are frankly a little terrifying imagine like (laughs) black web page red letters blue letters it's like what is this and this and these were schools that were reputable but also were very clearly not Christian meaning that um, they had a Buddhist perspective a Taoist perspective something that didn't align with my faith value as a Christian 
And Leslie University was the first school I could find that said, it doesn't matter what your faith experience is. We want you to mm. talk about your faith, your religious experience, and you can incorporate that into your mental health lens. And so Leslie was the only school I applied to um, because the other schools also required studio training and studio classes that I didn't have access to at the time. And so when Leslie said yes, I packed my bags from uh, Orlando, Florida, Lakeland, Florida, respectively, and flew up to Massachusetts um, and went in the two year, to a two-year program at Leslie. And I had a really great experience. I was able to learn about expressive therapies, art, music, dance, movement, music, singing, the idea of how creativity, as well as things that are just creative, can help people grow as individuals and how we can use these things to think about anxiety, depression, addiction, anger, um, mental health experiences that undermine our growths and well-beings as individuals. And so that's, it was a really thrilling adventure because I was able to do, um, do college theater, graduate school level theater. Um, I've been able to do community, um, community theater um, in mm. Boston and Cambridge area. Um, I've been able to eventually foster skills in, um, in musical instruments like ukulele and drums and um, all kinds of creative things with art and, and uh, visual art like watercolor, acrylics, mixed media, inst larger installation pieces. Um, yeah, so it's just, it's been a, it's been quite a fun adventure, but if I talked to Louie when he was um, 18 to 38 year old me today, I think he'd be very surprised at where he ended up. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Okay, so this question is a little off topic, but did you have like a Broadway play that you were like dreaming to star in? If I could choose a show to star in now, um, I would be really excited to go into the revival of Company um, that's mm. playing in New York. This is going to be dating our, our podcast <laughs> in that sense, but um, the musical Company written by um, Stephen Sondheim, who died, um, who died recently in the past yeah. few months, um, he produces a show called Company, where it's about a mid-30s person named Bobby is living out their life. And originally the show was, um, was written to be a, um, where Bobby was a male character, but they rewritten the show to be Bobby as a woman. And so mm. that kind of shifts all of the character dynamics, all the facets of storytelling, songwriting. Um, that would be a really fun show to be in, just because I love this idea of like, what does it mean to navigate life in the big city? What is, what mm. do relationships, what does intimacy, what does community mean? Um, that would be a really fun show to step into. That's so fun. I love that. Yeah, I love, I love musicals and theater. And I mean, art as a whole is something I'm really drawn to. Expressive therapy is something that I personally don't have a ton of experience with. I've done talk therapy, definitely benefited from that. But I'm actually really curious to hear more about expressive therapy. I know you kind of started going into that, but what does that look like practically? And how does that kind of bring healing to some of our areas of mental health? So as an expressive therapist, I'm a, I'm a registered expressive arts therapist with the International Expressive Arts Therapy Association. Um, and I really believe creativity is a really powerful healing tool. I think if a person isn't a Christian, I've seen people navigate wellness and goodness and healing through, um, through the creative arts. And as a Christian, I believe that um, that we are made to be creative beings. We are made in God's image and a way that we live out that manifestation 
um, whether we're Christian or not, is we are made to be creators. And some of us might not make art, meaning visual art, like paintings or drawings, but we create buildings, we create um, program coding, we create food, we create all kinds of things that kind of echo um, the, the deepest parts of who we are made um, in the image of God. Um, and expressive therapy is the way it kind of looks day to day. Um, I've done group therapy work, which is um, some of my earliest work where I will sit in a room with five, 10, 15 people and we navigate a topic of wellness. Maybe it's how to build social support. Maybe it's how to regulate really challenging feelings. And then we make something to help embody it, encapsulate it, symbolize it. Sometimes it is um, saying, hey, let's um, close our eyes. Let's do a visualization and think about a color that reminds us of what wellness looks like or feels like. And maybe that color becomes an image. And then mm. when they see that image, I'll ask clients to pull out of the visualization work and say, all right, let's put that image onto paper. Some of my clients, they're super comfortable with drawing or coloring, and that's great. Some of my clients are intimidated because art is made to be this really prolific thing to where you have to be trained. And I'd say as an expressive therapist, absolutely not. Um, there's ways to access creativity with collage, um, with different types of media that's less um, intimidating. Um, but even as an artist, I have no technical classical art training. I come into an expressive therapies as an actor, performer, and I've learned different types of creative crafts, like um, learning ukulele, like painting, like um, collage and like mixed media work, like dance movement, among other modalities. Um, and so the expressive therapies in a group setting tells an experience and then group members share with each other what they made and how what they've learned. And that learning helps helps all the members because they hear each other. Whereas when I do individual work, um, I'm. I'm holding space with a client and they're saying, I feel really disorganized, really stressed out right now. And I ask, hey, would you like to take like 10, 15 minutes to write down what you're feeling in journal? Um, and sometimes if the client's comfortable with creativity, I might say, hey, let's try to distill more deeply what you're feeling after you're journaling. How about we do something called blackout poetry? And I want you to cross out all the superfluous, extra, non-essential words that sometimes you write and it feels right, but when we take a second pass, we realize that's not necessary. And so blackout poetry is a tool where clients or individuals can express themselves and distill meaning out of a larger array of work and, and sort of boil it down into a more concentrated um, anecdotal concept. Um, and so when clients are able to really hone in with creativity, they're proud because they made something and then we end up learning more about someone's experience. And so the idea of expressive therapies is asking a client to try something they've not done before. Um, so it, the instincts is that some people think, well, I have to be creative to be in expressive therapy. Actually, it's actually challenging for creatives to step in because they have views and expectations. Um, and so actually people who are not comfortable with creativity or have minimal training have more have the ability to step in a way that's less filtered um, or less stressful because they don't know what good art in their what the constructs of what good art is and so they just make something and then they're really proud of it um, or they learn something in the process because in expressive therapies learning at leslie it's not about the product it's about the process yeah i think art is so interesting in how it like engages um our mind, our body and soul in ways that sometimes even for me can be unexpected, even if it's not art I'm making, but I just think about going to different exhibitions and sometimes 
being moved to tears and I'm like, oh, why am I crying at this experience? But I do think like I found creativity to sort of maybe unlock places in me that I didn't even know were there, but it sort of like dug that up in me. I think it's that reminder that aggressive therapies is not the gatekeeper of wellness and creativity. We as a society, we as people have like like touched upon creativity prior to this degreed program, prior to the institutions that teach about psychology and mental health. Um, people just play music and people just feel good or feel better. Just like when people make paintings or drawings that tell a story, it compels us to take action or to change. And so it's that reminder that the, that creativity is older, it is ancient, and dare I say mm. it is godly or Christ-like because it is God who has given us that ability to create because we're ultimately mimicking our maker. And so it's this reminder that when we go to an art museum and we're moved to tears because we see something, it's, um, I, I would propose it's God, the Holy Spirit moving in us. And people who are not Christian through common grace can experience goodness and experience revelation. And I think how much more powerful is it if you are a Christian, because we we recognize the creator has done all of this in us and that we don't have to wonder where it comes from or try to derive goodness just within ourselves. And that that's a common narrative is that we can derive goodness within ourselves. But really, that creativity, that goodness, if we derive it just from ourselves, is like asking a car to run on its own gas. And at some point it mm. runs out. It might take a long time for it to run out. But the quality of the experience becomes, I think, compromised or questioned or questionable. Thus, looking to a higher power in this faith, in this case, God, Jesus Christ, to be that gas for us, gas for me in particular. That's what keeps me going as an artist, let alone as a therapist and as a person. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, I really love that. One thing I'm wondering about, and this might not relate at all, but something I'm thinking about, I, I did this work-life direction program for a period of time. And, um, one of the things the woman encouraged me to do a lot, because I can be a person that gets in my head quite a bit, um, Mm. was that she sort of encouraged me to think about how something feels in my body. And when I think about mental health, I often think, you know, just kind of about who we are as like holistic beings. I'm wondering if expressive therapy touches on that a little bit. Like, do you think it helps us like integrate ourselves as whole beings, like Mm -hmm. mind, body, soul? Does it touch on those concepts? I would say that expressive therapies is a tool to engage in a holistic approach of wellness. It's the reminder that um, in the mental health system, we were trained or people, people formerly were trained just to look at mental health and that this is a disease. There's something with medication that can take care of it. And over the decades, we've been really trying to learn as mental health providers how to look at things from a holistic perspective that our physical healths are connected to our mental healths, which is connected to our emotional well-being, our spiritual well-being, our fill-in-the-blank perspective. And this idea is we use, we can use creativity to navigate wellness, meaning that um, in one of the classes I took, it was um, body-oriented psychotherapy. Um, and I really admired that class of Shira Carmen was the professor at that time. And she was able to help us think about like, how do we um, use our bodies to act and to advocate for ourselves? How can we practice the power of yes, the power of no? And this is from a very secular, um, non-Christian institution. Um, but the idea is that Uh, we can use these ideas to um, embody change. If we can use our bodies to vocally, not just vocally, but physically express yes, 
physically and vocally express no, that's getting in touch with our bodies. It's this idea that um, when we say yes, and I guess if I'm trying to like create this concept with words in real time, because it's a podcast, they can't see us. This idea is that when I say yes, um, I'm using maybe my throat and I might've winced my face and I said yes or no. But imagine if you can jump around saying yes and no and moving in different ways to recognize yes is a powerful word and no is a powerful word. Um, so this idea, I guess, from a clinical perspective, we're reminding ourselves that boundaries and setting limits when things aren't going well in our lives sometimes takes a full experience. It's the reminder that we are created as whole beings. God didn't just create floating heads. God didn't just create um, this, um, just like um, disembodied entities of sorts. He created this container, um, this, this, uh, this vessel, to this jar of clay to be able to care um, from a Christian perspective, his good news, from a, a human experience, um, the, the lives that we bear. And so how do we connect well? Um, we zoom in and ask, hey, when you're feeling anxious in sessions, I'll ask, hey, when you're feeling anxious, do you notice where that is in your body? A client will say, that's in my chest and I have a racing heart and um, sometimes my hands start to sweat. It's like, all right, these are cues that are saying you're getting overwhelmed or your cues of dot, dot, dot. How can we regulate that? Because our bodies are giving us clues um, to take care of ourselves. Because um, if we don't notice them, our bodies will do more extreme things to get attention. That's why other medical issues could flare up. It's like, wow, I'm getting nauseated. I kind of want to vomit. It's like, well, you didn't listen to the first cue because it, because it's because you're getting it's getting escalated. Our bodies try to take care of ourselves, and sometimes after trauma, it tries to take care of us, but it's disproportionate to the actual circumstances. Mm, yeah that's so good that's a lot to think about too one thing I want to touch on you mentioned throughout this time a little bit about your faith and so one thing I'd love to chat about um, is how has taking care of your mental health impacted um, your spirituality your relationship with God um, and then vice versa like how do you see your faith and your relationship with God impacting your mental health yeah, so this intersection between mental health and spiritual health. Yeah. I think as I foster, as I taking care of my mental health, that means actually it's interesting. Some of them, what I guess it's like a Venn diagram, two circles that overlap. Because I think of oh, one informs the other, and and vice versa. But then I realize, well, I learned in my Christian faith, I learned really early on the concept of journaling, um, the idea of being able to write down our feelings and our thoughts to process our experiences and. Um, these days, although not perfect at it, I really value journaling because I use it one as a tool of gratitude. I'll always write down the date. Like sometimes it's like five days worth of journaling. So if there's five dates worth of what did I do today in those five days or one day. And then I practice gratitude by saying, God, thank you for uh, my job and how I'm able to care about people. And I'm thankful for my friends and people who are part of my life. Or I just start kind of rattling off things I'm grateful for because that posture is really important. I would say um, spirituality, Christianity has brought in that aspect of gratitude. Um, there was a book, the author's name evades me. It's a thousand blessings. Um, a previous children's pastor gave it to me. And I believe if you know this book, it's about a woman who is a mom. And I think that it's a chapter one, so harsh and spoiler alert, sorry. Chapter <laughs> one, I think brings us into a bereavement because the, the author's sister dies tragically. And so yeah. chapter two continues with how she reconciles living a life of gratitude. She literally writes down a thousand things she's grateful for. Something as mundane as soap bubbles, among other things. And that 
really started framing, oh, can I do that? And so I started practicing a gratitude journal, which led to me um, integrating gratitude into my mental health. Um, so my Christianity um, informs my mental health, uh, my mental health, because I think of like how, how the Christian faith uh, proposes that God created the world and that he loved the world so much that he wanted to save it because it has acted out in sin. This is, that's a big ask for someone who isn't Christian to believe that we have sin and so on. But if we combine to the fact that we are um, imperfect, that we are not, um, that we are inherently not good, even though there's, we, there's goodness in us and that we're creating God's image, but we have sin. Um, it's that proposal of recognizing, wow, someone loves me so much and I'm a sucker for a good romance, a good, a good rom-com. I'm going to date myself and people might laugh or disagree with the amazingness of you've got mail. No, not everyone loves <laughs> you've got mail. I do. I love, the, I love the, I love that idea of romance. It's not probably the perfect view. It's probably very dated, didn't age well, but that was an example of what romance was to me. And I'm like, oh, wow, I'm being sought after, although a little bit little bit kooky but the idea is that <laughs> wow someone loves me so much that they care for me. and going into the biblical narrative someone loves me so much that they don't want me to be separated from them separated from god in heaven but he would send a son to die for me and that fuels me as a christian to do uh, to live out my faith but it fuels me as a mental health provider to love my clients and love my neighbors if there's an opportunity that makes sense to share why I do my work as a mental health provider, I hope I have the courage and the guts to say my Christian faith compels me because I, because Jesus loves me, I want to share that with others. Do I say that to everybody? No. Is there room for improvement? Yes. Could this podcast just kind of be slipped in to my conversations? It's probably the easiest way to answer that question these days. Just listen to this podcast at this minute mark, wherever this is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love that. Yeah. Um, you've got mail. I feel like that's like classic nineties, Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan, bouquets of freshly sharpened pencils. That's like what comes to mind when I think of that <laughs> movie. I love, I love gratitude practice though. And actually I think the author of that book is Anne Voskamp, if I'm remembering correctly, because mm -hmm. that book actually had a significant impact on me. I read it, I think back in 2012. And um, I started buying journals actually specifically to do that. So I always buy a journal and then I'll fill it up to 1000. And then mm -hmm. when I hit 1000, then I buy a new journal and start 1000 over again. And I think for me, like the, the practice of gratitude has been also a practice of noticing. Like, I think what I didn't expect from starting it was how small things would stand out to me in ways that like. I don't know if I would have been grateful for those things. And I just like, I saw that as like um, a change in the way I was like starting to look um, at the world through that practice. Yeah. I, I think the more we can pause and be appreciative for how God is working in our life um, for those who aren't Christian, just be grateful for the fact that we're existing and we're alive. I, I would ask like, where does that come from? And that develops hopefully a deeper conversation but to be able to pause and just like say, wow, this is a gift. This existence is so beautiful and wonderful. And it's not mine in one sense. It is God's. And I have been given this privilege mm. to exist and be here to have a purpose. Um, and then our first purpose as humans is to worship, is worship God, to worship our creator. Point being is that we are made to worship and we are made to glorify. Mm. We're made yeah. to do that. 
which I believe we are, um, we can step into it through all these different means of sharing our faith, enjoying the rain, eating a taco in the rain, what may have you, that, uh, that our existence is a reminder that we are loved and cared for. It might be that that could be a big ask, but that's the proposal that I give because how, mm. why else would I be here? Otherwise life is um, another friend of mine would talk about like, he doesn't agree with this, but a philosophy he plays with is that like the world is a meat grinder and we're just mm-hmm. put into the sausage machine and making these like sausages. Like, well, the world, yes, there's awful and cruel and terrible things happening. And yet we can pause and say, God is good that we can have hope um, despite the fact there's atrocities happening every moment of every day, that we can still say God is good and that we are loved and cared for. And from that, we can take these these, uh, microcosmic steps to create change in the world around us. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. And it reminds me too, like this idea of like honoring beauty, like does point us to a God who cares about those things. As you were talking, it reminded me of this book, um, Culture Care by Mako Fujimura. In it, he tells the story of his wife bringing home flowers kind of early on in their marriage and money was tight and him almost feeling like, you know, like we can't afford that or like, flowers are superfluous or, you know, money should go towards, I don't know, something else in this season. And the statement from his wife in that moment was that we need to care for our souls too. And for me, it just reminds me of the importance of beauty, the importance of things that lift our eyes and ears to to something higher to to God to the reminder that there is goodness in the midst of brokenness and pain and hardship and so I love this idea of like what does it mean to care for our souls in all seasons of our life beauty is like always always worth it in a sense, you know, and leaning us to this sense of a God who, who values that and who values us. And like, even in these small things, it doesn't have to be um, big, but how do you, how do you hold that tension when there is so much hardship in the world? You know, how do you, the same author and Voskamp, she talks about that um, connection between joy and sorrow and like how they don't have to cancel um, each other out. And that was actually like huge for me. Cause I think I really like separated or had to like separate those things for a while. And I think it's really allowed me to live with a sense of greater peace. Just saying like, I can have joy in this hand and I can have sorrow in this hand and they can both, um, exist at the same time. Yeah. And a, a way of illustrating that same concept. It makes me think of the movie inside out mm. and how joy and sadness yeah. are in, are combating for the control of this young person who's formulating their outlook on the world. And that the lesson learned by the end of the movie is that these things are interwoven and overlap because our sat in this character story, spoiler alert again, for those who haven't seen inside <laughs> out, let's skip the next 30 seconds is the idea that at the end of the story saw um, um, sadness 
um, and joy overlap because um, they remember an experience where in sadness, they find joy. And I think it's that reminder of like our experiences can overlap that they don't have to be compartmentalized. God has made us um, to be these beings that have, uh, that have emotions and feelings and that um, worship is not a drudgery or a chore. We're not made to um, be robotic in our worship. We're made to be um, able to choose to have worship. That's why we have like this, this, this self volition, this autonomy to believe that Jesus is a savior of the world or to believe he's not. Otherwise, what, how, how meaningful is love when it is forced or forced or, um, or, or somehow like pressed down upon an individual. Thus, I really appreciate being able to have the duality of emotions that mm. our life experiences um, and our feelings. Ultimately, I'd like to propose drive us into deeper um, seeking of God, deeper seeking of holiness and goodness mm. and Christ-likeness. Um, but it does come at the high cost of it being uncomfortable, the painful, because loved ones die and we lose yeah. jobs and we get injured or, or, or get sick in ways that are long-term or have breakups, everything in between. But it's the idea that our feelings um, maybe open us up to think about like who who's out there. Is there something bigger than this emotion? And, and mm. the proposal would be that Jesus Christ, that God is bigger and that he wants to, to embrace us and be with us. Yeah, I love that. Inside Out. That's such a great movie. I felt like mm-hmm. it should have come with like a little warning though. <laughs> mm-hmm. I went to that movie, like some friends invited me. They're like, you want to go see a Pixar movie? I thought, yeah, that sounds fun. <laughs> and then I remember getting in that movie being like, I wasn't ready to process my life right now. Nobody told me this. I mean, but this is like the same movie as like, this is the same company I wrote Up and you watch Up and you realize in the first 10 minutes, the central, again, spoiler alert, the central <laughs> character's wife um, dies. And so we deal yeah. with bereavement within the first 10 minutes. And then we now have to see um, an elderly man navigate a life post bereavement um, and then go on an amazing adventure. Um, yeah. yeah, Pixar is Pixar's gut wrenching in that sense. Very <laughs> wonderful, but by no means a no no means a soft pitch um, in no. that way. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've been I've been warned now. I know what I'm getting into when I go to a Pixar movie. Well, I love I love these thoughts. A couple places I want to go, you know, thinking about our community and and the listeners, and you know, they're primarily going to be university students, and so you know, how do we help them navigate life and the things they're going through? And so one of the things I was thinking about, particularly on um, our last conversation, one of the questions we, we kind of scratched the surface with was this idea of like, what can a therapist do that your community can't do? And then what can your community do that a therapist can't do? And so one of the places I thought we could dive a little deeper tonight you know, thinking about um, university students, like they're probably going to fall in the, the community aspect. Um, even if they're going to become a therapist later, they're probably not yet. And so as we think about engaging um, with our friends, like what are some ways that we can be helpful in our friends' community playing that, playing that role? Um, and then what are some things we should avoid as we are the community and, and not the um, mental health professionals? I think community, I, I guess for me to try to answer that question, well, I need to like dive into my own experience as a fellow human. 
and thinking mm. like, wow, what were my friends able to do that my therapists over the years can't? Yes, your ther- this therapist sees other therapists. We highly recommend that. That's very normal. Um, and so I think about like, what did my friends do growing up? And my friends were the people in my life who would play imaginary superheroes with me. And they were the people who we could have sleepovers with. And the people that we could um, eat really delicious, greasy food or learn about our eccentric yeah. quirks. I had a childhood friend, um, love him dearly. We, we don't keep in touch as much recently, but working on it. But he, I, I grew up with him and his family and he eats like ketchup with his pancakes. We want the kind of life where we can spend time with people to learn those eccentricities. Just like I was the kid who wanted to eat um um, jelly and American cheese sandwiches. Um, okay. And so, and I cut the crust off, of course. Uh, but the idea is that we want to have, be able to have a community where we can share in those experiences. Obviously we might, maybe some of our, some of our viewers have done things like this, but then as they are in college experience, you're able to stay up late and hang out. You're able to go on adventures. You are able to watch a movie together, um, read a book together, do life together in a way that is in proximity, even in an era where we are navigating COVID-19 and co and people and people's comforts around physical space. It's the idea that we can do things together, whether through, um, Zoom, whether through um, Google Hangouts or whatever apps and platforms people use for community, it's the idea that our friends and our community are able to relate to us in a way that's very candid and relational. I think the risk will be is when um, we're in a situation where the friend doesn't know what to do. And I purposely am going to try to leave it at that language because um, if we go into too much nuance, we might go down another further rabbit trail. The broader stroke would be, if you aren't sure what to do, that's a good reason to say, let's get help. And help might not even mean a mental health provider. It might not even mean calling a doctor or a healthcare professional. It might be talking to an RA, talking to um, crew leadership or a mentor. The idea that um, when we aren't sure of how to care for somebody because we just don't have that experience, I think, although scary, a safe answer is, I don't know, let's go mm-hmm. find someone that does. Not because the friend isn't capable or intelligent, but theoretically, if someone says, I wanna die, I don't wanna live anymore. And this person um, doesn't feel comfortable navigating, it's really scary to put that burden on someone who doesn't know what to do, especially if that friend, understandably, because they're scared or something would say, don't tell anybody. This needs to be a secret just between you and me. You can't tell anyone. And that's understandable, but that doesn't make it um, as containing, as safe as it could be, because then the friend doesn't know what's going to happen to the one who's struggling with their wellness. And so being able to say, hey, that's, I feel so scared. I feel so worried for you. Let's get help because I don't, I don't think you should do this alone. I care enough about you to say, I am not good enough. Not that you don't care, but that we're not as equipped as we want to be. That's where a healthcare provider comes in. The therapist is, and the healthcare worker is trained. They have an intellectual book knowledge, anecdotal lived experience or clinical experience of helping people who struggle or experience intensities of anxiety, bouts of depression, anger, addiction, anything in between where our emotional and mental well-beings don't feel contained. Um, That's the strength of a therapist is that we can talk to um, our clients in a way that I'm not your friend, but ethically speaking, 
for me to do my job well as a therapist, I want to be able to see you as, or see this um, as an individual, as a, as an, and I see them as a, as a person who is seeking a service. They're seeking help. They're seeking a relationship that can talk through something in a way that is third party and objective, meaning that because I don't know your family or friends as well, I'm able to really talk about this objectively and talk about this through your perspective, the person who's seeking help. Um, And that can be really relieving because then that client won't wonder, am I siding with so-and-so? And And if they think I am, that's also part of the work. Um, So the benefit of therapy is that I can sort of look at things objectively, um, talk about things in a way with an education and perspective, and also have access to resources in case help is more needed than what an individual therapist can provide. Occasionally, I have to say, hey, so-and-so, for us to work together, I think you need to seek more help. Not because I don't care, but because I do care, I think you need to go visit a partial hospitalization and do some group therapy there. And then when you get that support, let's come back and talk about it so that you can feel more prepared to use this service. Um, so the this is sort of, I think about that relationship and what closeness and intimacy look like, looks like thus the, the community can really go into the trenches. But when the trenches become very difficult or tumultuous, we pull in others. And then eventually it moves to the spectrum of pulling in trained professionals who see this in a very different lens that's objective and aligning versus relational and intimate. They can both be intimate, but they have different flavors and vibes. That's great. I think that's so helpful. And that feels freeing to, you know, just thinking, like, I can say I don't know, or I can say like, this goes beyond my capacity. Um, You know, sometimes in situations, most times in situations, especially if it's somebody you care about, it's like, you want to help you want to know how to step in and it's like, but sometimes you just don't know. And I think the freedom to, to say, I don't know, but let's, let's find someone who does know. I really love that. Yes. It's it's like the idea of certain relationships, um, like in crew, for example, I think it can, it can be really helpful to remind students, Hey, you don't have to know how to care about somebody. If it feels outside your scope, that's what we're here for. We're not trained therapists, but we do want to listen and we can connect you to those because sometimes our students just need to be reminded listening to this podcast, you don't have to know how to take care of somebody. You're yes. a young person navigating school. You're just figuring out life. You're just getting used to living on your own or in a dorm with people you like or don't like. And then <laughs> you have to worry about people's well-beings. That's a big ask. That's why there are RAs. That's why there's student life. That's why there's counseling services on campus, off campus organizations like crew among others that that have adults who have lived experiences to say, Hey, that's really tough. I remember that because it reminds me of this. Let's walk through it. So then they don't have to figure it out on their own. Although it's understandable. Some of our students have struggled in that experience because they didn't have those supports or didn't have that type of like allyship or perspective to say, let's seek help, which is why this podcast is reminding you seek help if you don't know, just like I hope crew among other student organizations would speak up. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's like having a layered approach to your support and your community. And we all need different types of people uh, in our lives to really um, grow and flourish. So the other place I want to go, and I think I'll probably, um, 
talk about this maybe with some of the other panelists too, because I'm curious to get different um, different perspectives on this, but kind of in a similar um, vein as the last question, kind of some practical steps. Um, you know, sometimes the next step might be going to a therapist or, you know, something like that. But I'm curious about like, what are sort of the everyday habits that we can just cultivate um, as humans uh, to kind of honor our mental health? Like, what does that look like to just kind of take care of ourselves in, in our everyday lives? I think it's um, it's it's fostering a lifestyle of emotional, mental, and spiritual wellness. It's not just the. Um, um, I was talking with a colleague of mine, and she thinks about um, like sleep hygiene and sleep wellness spectrum things. And so the idea that she proposes is that we're not just thinking about um, what we do the last couple of hours before we go to bed. That's absolutely important. But sometimes we have to look further back. We have to look back to the afternoon, that morning, that lunchtime, that dinner time, whatever other time we consider. And then thus it's thinking about what are the things we can do throughout the day that bolsters wellness. And you know, in a day that I'm able to do everything I'm really excited about, um, this is probably a weekend day because the weekdays feel a little more constrained because I work full time. Um, it would be waking up in the morning, having breakfast um, and maybe listening to the radio. Uh, maybe um, journaling, reading my Bible, maybe reading an inspirational book. Um, I think it also means um, doing things throughout the day that feel good. We live in a world where we are attached to our technology. I just had this weird experience today that I haven't felt in about a year, year and a half. I was developing, I felt like a mild twitch under one of my eyes, which was reminding me, oh no, too much screen time. I need to pivot and do something else. So it's making sure I don't spend time with technology, even though it's so convenient. It's handheld computers. We can play Wordle, which is going to super date this five years down the road when Wordle's not a thing. We can play Wordle and Quartle. I don't know, Angry Birds. And those are fun. <laughs> but then what happens is that if we're using our tech all day, our bodies aren't built to do that. And thus hands and wrists can feel uncomfortable among other things. So the point being is finding ways to decompress, taking that walk outside, making that snack, going to buy lunch or coffee at a local establishment. If, um, it could be making something. It could be, again, journaling. Um, for me, sometimes it's painting. Um, for me, it's being able to go exercise. Um, my personal current interest is sports climbing. Previously, it was hot yoga, um, and, um, and I'm also biking recreationally. Um, but the idea of doing athletic activity to get our heart rates up, because our bodies aren't made to be sedentary. We're not made to sit in chairs, regardless of how ergonomic they are. We're made to move, and we're made to express, and made to take up space, because we are made in God's image. He wants us to be here. Thus, it's that reminder we can do things that are good. Um, we're also made to be in community. And so self-care, um, I guess, to address, like, how do we take care of ourselves throughout the day? It could be being in touch with a friend, hanging out with um, a group of people, maybe going to a show, a movie, um, being able to do things with others. Like um, I'm reading more. I loathe reading. Reading is a painful chore. And I've slowly been rebuilding my appetite to read because I have a friend who um, I'm sharing faith and life with, and we are reading a book a month from InterVarsity Press because they are doing a book a month thing. And I'm like, okay, I'll try it. And so I give up on a subscription to clothing I like, and then I pivot to buying this book once a month instead. And it's been edifying. 
just like having friends to sports climb with, just like having people to eat dinner with or to meet up to get coffee with. I think I also lean into a community aspect and I also lean into which is not right for everybody. Um, this part of like leaning into filling your days more than less. I'm a person that if I have too much open spare time, I can make really impulsive or dumb decisions I regret later. And so for me, I'm learning how to fill my time well, but not overfill it to where I also burn out. But I'm that person, if you look at my calendar on my phone, I pretty much have something filled in most hours of most days, even if it's planned me time. That's another classic one. Just plan a date with yourself. You don't always have to be with people. That's, I'm telling myself that too. So making sure to be with yourself. And it's like, oh, can you hang out on this day? Nope, I have plans. People can't see the air quotes. But plans means I'm going to do something for me. I'm going to go to that coffee shop. I'm going to go to that bookstore. I'm going to take that walk or go to that art museum or bring people with you to those things, depending. But I think any activity that causes us to pause and not be as intense in what we're doing um, is going to be really helpful self-care, even if it does produce energy because we enjoy it and are passionate. Just something that we can find joy in and meaning or introspection in to find ways to plant them and plug them in throughout the day, even if it's five to 10 minutes. Sometimes I even take a nap during the day. If I have a couple extra hours, I'm going to take a nap. Um, embarrassingly, I, I'll take a nap maybe at the office or I'll take a nap at home. We're allowed to recalibrate if we need to. We're allowed to pause. That's so good. Those are some great suggestions too. And and I like the idea of knowing yourself too, because for each person, it might look a little different what those activities are. And I love that reminder too, that even if it's, even if it's short, even if it's five or 10 minutes, that's been a huge growth area. I think for me, like I had a time where with certain things, I felt like, oh, if I didn't have the time I wanted to spend on it, I just wouldn't do it. And um, I love yoga with Adrian. I don't know if you ever do yoga with mm-hmm. Adrian. I should have seen if I haven't done it. One of the things she says a lot, and it's kind of stuck with me, is just this idea of like, a little goes a long way. And I've been trying to like practice that in some different ways, whether it's exercise or whether it's time with God, like, no, let's do like the little bit of time that I have rather than just saying like, oh, let's throw it out the window because I don't have the full chunk of time. And that's actually been a really helpful practice in this season. I love that. Like, I mean, you technology, a benefit of it is that it's so accessible. We can literally pop up a YouTube video. We can literally go on Spotify and find a podcast of our interest. We can literally find our favorite um, things through the internet, through our iPhones or Androids or whatever tech we have. And we can find ways to recalibrate. So I don't want to discard tech as a exclusively bad thing. I think it's useful. It's a matter of finding balance. Just like if I like sports climbing, I don't want to go five days a week because that will actually hurt my body versus help it unless if I really find a nuanced regimen. Um, but the idea is that too much of anything can be problematic, but can mm-hmm. we find a healthy balance of what wellness and goodness is? And so that could be the yoga for five or 10 minutes. It could be um, a 30 minute jog. Um, that gets our heart rates up. It could be taking five or 10 minutes just to do it. Um, there's an artist I follow, Raina Lowe, and she, for the past couple of years, has been doing like a doodle a day. And a doodle is just like a quick drawing based on a theme or inspired by a prompt. And it's, it doesn't take a lot to recalibrate 
And I still recommend those larger chunks of time. If I could, if I had the ability to prescribe anything, I would prescribe vacations and it would be all paid and all inclusive. Here's, a, here's your script, go get it filled. If I could give that to people, I would because vacations, just as much as a day off, just as much as a 10 minute um, cat, if I, like a cat nap of sorts are just as meaningful. So remembering that we need to rest. We're not made to always be doing things. Yes, we are. We can pray and we can be vigilant in our values, but we're also we're also made to sleep. We're also made to stop and we're made to rest. Um, our bodies are literally built that way. So if our bodies are built to rest by sleeping, how much more so can we consider resting when needed or as it's a, as if it's a situation? Mm, that's so good. Maybe one last question. I do think one of the things we're trying to do with this series um, in particular is normalize mental health to try to destigmatize um, some of the narratives that have built up around mental health. And um, one of the questions that came up, and it was another one we touched on a little bit, but I thought we could dive a little deeper in, is this idea of maybe we have destigmatized getting help for ourselves, but maybe we come from a family who hasn't, or maybe we come from a friend group who hasn't. And so it's not even our um, individual thing preventing us, but maybe some of these external factors. How would you kind of recommend moving forward for somebody that might be in that sort of position? Oof. What a, what that that's a good question. It's a it's a hard question for me to like, reconcile because um, in narrative therapy, um, an approach I commonly use with clients, I think a strength of the approach it definitely leans into the worlds of activism, and those metaphors have function. Um, but before I go into that part, it's about um, narrative therapy is about clarifying and upholding your values, and I think that works with a lot of different institutions, belief systems, value systems. I would even propose Christianity can navigate, think about what are our values, where does our faith lie, et cetera. But the idea is that when I think of clients and asking, hey, what do you stand for? What do you believe in? They start to talk about that. And they say, well, my mental health is really important. And I said, well, what's the cost of upholding that? The painful part of narrative therapy is that um, although important and relevant and useful, it works well in activist communities, meaning we stand up for our values. We might protest, we might um, petition in a way that is uncomfortable. And the painful part is that upholding our values, sometimes it means it comes at high cost. That doesn't mean we don't suffer alone. It doesn't mean we become a martyr needlessly, but it means that when we stand up for what we believe in, and in this instance, it would, it would sound like it's closer to the importance of mental health treatment and the importance of finding a community that will help foster, help me to grow as an individual while acknowledging I experience depression or anxiety or dot, dot, dot. It might be really painful to acknowledge that. So I think it's one how, if you have this conversation, how do you have it? How do we do it with elegance or poise or grace? Or how do we do it with vulnerability and transparency? But then how do we do it in a way that says, I am making a choice and it is a painful choice that you're not, that someone doesn't enjoy it, standing up for what they believe in when others disagree. I think it's also reminding, it's like if I had to be in that situation where I had to talk with somebody like that, I'd want to make sure I'm not alone. I want to make sure I've told others that, hey, I'm having this tough conversation. Can you pray for me? Or 
can you be nearby? Can you kind of be on speed dial, so to speak? Um, but the idea is being able to say, I, I think it's actually admitting that you have to say, hey, this is important to me. My mental health is really important. I plan on seeing a therapist. And some people are going to say, oh, you're not praying hard enough. Oh, you're not godly or good enough. And that's frankly, not for them to judge. They don't know the individual. I'm not one to criticize people in that sense who say they're Christian. I have to trust that God is working in them. If someone speaks of a difference, sure, I'll say, hey, I don't think that's what Christians believe and then start nuancing it from there. But going back to your question, how do we stand up for ourselves and navigate um, our worlds when our worlds don't align? I think it is that painful proposal of it's worth saying, hey, I think we have different views and I'm still going to do this to take care of myself. Um, sometimes we are in a situation where we can't literally leave. And so I think it's going to be then making sure we have communities and allies that say, Hey, I'm in this really uncomfortable situation. Can you be praying for me and making sure to find ways to join our communities that do care, that do uphold our values. And uh, regrettably, I wish I could give, a more magical answer, a more like prescriptive here, just yeah. say this or do this and it would be done. But I feel like regrettably that might, I, I think we're a little hard. I feel a little hard pressed to do that because standing up for what we believe in, Jesus did it among other great revolutionaries, other among other great individuals, people stand up for their values and it comes at high cost. Sometimes one's life, one, sometimes one's quality of life. Yeah. Yeah, that is, that's real. And that's, I think, honest uh, to what people might experience. But I do, I do love what you said about like finding the support in that, you know, finding the safe spaces um, in that. And I think, you know, for anybody listening, that is a part of our community crew in the Fenway, like we, we want to say we can be a safe space to, to pray and to come alongside and, um, and to even grieve in those places that maybe just are hard and unchanging in this moment. Um, so Lou, I have, I've loved this conversation. I've really appreciated, um, your heart and your wisdom and your joy. I personally would have loved to see you on Broadway someday. Maybe I'll catch you in community theater um, in and around the city. But I'm so, so grateful for this conversation. Thanks for uh, continuing on with us and supporting our community in the topic of mental health. Yeah, it's my pleasure to be here. I'm happy to chat and be available. I'm easily findable on Instagram. Um, I, I'm, I'm just going to be dated because I use like my name and my initials and my birth year. L-D-L-I-M-83. If you want to find me on Instagram, it's art climbing among other lifestyle experiences. But I try to think about how mental health intersects with expressive arts therapy among other types of topics. Um, but I think it's just important to have that dialogue. And I hope to continue to do that with y'all um, as it serves you. Yeah, we're so grateful. Yeah, check out Lou on his socials and we'll see you guys next time for our next crew conversations.